This is Michael Gebert, and this is where I usually ask you to leave us a rating or a review at iTunes to help raise our profile among old movie podcasts and attract more listeners. The fact is, less than 10% of our usual listeners have even left us a rating there, let alone written a little something about it. So I'm going to sweeten the pot this time, as if this podcast weren't incentive enough. If you leave a rating, or better yet, a rating and a review, and then post on Nitrateville in the show post thread that you did so, you'll be eligible for a giveaway of Nitrateville member Ed LaRusso's latest crowdfunded release, a teen spy thriller called On Dangerous Ground, starring Carlisle Blackwell. And if that isn't a silent movie name, I don't know what is. If you didn't back the Kickstarter, there's no way to get this title now. So this is your one chance. Once again, leave a rating or a review at iTunes. Say you did so at Nitrateville in the show post, and one of you will win on dangerous ground. Thanks to Ed LaRusso and Nitrateville Radio. Thanks. For the, like the comedies and the comedy shorts which we do, it's really nice to see families come in with their kids. Because I try to sit in the theater near a group of kids and I kind of watch them watch the film. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of classic era films. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site about movies from the classic age from all around the world. How do you put a comedian known for his vocal humor into silent films? For that matter, how do you do Shakespeare in silent films? With a woman playing Hamlet, no less. These questions and others will be answered in this episode of Nitrateville Radio, in which I speak with a co-founder of the Toronto Silent Film Festival the pair behind Los Angeles's The Silent Treatment, and the author who did the commentaries for two new releases starring W.C. Fields. So don't let Mogo on the Gagogo keep you down. Make sure you listen to every episode of Nitrateville Radio. Subscribe at iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And if you like what we do, leave a rating and a review at iTunes, which helps other people discover us too. The Toronto Silent Film Festival will have its 10th festival in nine years. We'll explain that in a bit. This April 6th through 9th, at three different locations in the city. I spoke with festival co-founder and director Shirley Hughes about this year's program, but also about how you find and nurture an audience for silent films in a place. As it turns out, we both have had experience with a legendary figure in Toronto's silent film presentation. I was reading about your background in silent films in Toronto. And I've seen exactly one silent film in Toronto in my life. About 20 years ago, I saw Robin Hood at Reg Hart's house, believe oh. it or not. <laughs> well, um, you know, Reg Hart, good friend of mine. Um, I actually, you know, to do the full background, he is 
one of those really important people in my life and the silent film scene in Toronto because he had all the films. I mean, that's when I first saw Buster Keaton. I mean, well beyond, well before VHS days and all that other stuff. I would see Buster Keaton in a book and going, like, who is this guy? I want to see his stuff. And, and Reg would show the Buster Keaton stuff and all these silence, like rarities, really beautiful prints. And he had a, a knack for putting uh, good music to it as well. So there's Reg Hart in those days. There's the uh, Toronto Film Society, which is still in existence. They no longer do a silent series. They did up until uh, 2005. So I got to see film on, on the big screen with them. You know, there's, there's small screenings around town nowadays. There's the film festival, which we have. Um, the Review Cinema, which is one of the cinemas in the West End, which I screen out of for the festival, has a, a, a really terrific silent film series called Silent Review. I screen in the sort of fall, winter, and a little bit in the spring and the East End at the Fox Theatre. And both of those houses are silent film houses, original silent film houses, which are still going strong. Is the silent film scene as, as big as maybe like New York City? Probably not. But it's, you know, it's a growing and, and kind of dedicated community, which is really, really nice to see. Well, it, it sounds like what really motivated you was to wanting to present them the way they were presented with music and on a big screen and all those, all those uh, classic movie virtues. Yeah, exactly. Um, part of the mandate when we started this up was one to restore the silent film audience. Plus, we wanted to showcase these independent cinemas, which we screened in. Um, and yeah, we wanted to show the films on the big screen with live accompaniment by like really good accompanists. And, and we're really lucky in Toronto that we've got actually got a good number of very, very excellent and very talented men and women which accompany the films. So uh, I'm in a good spot there because I, uh, I don't have to worry about that at all. In fact, I can sit there and, and throw the, the films which I want to screen out to the, my list of accompanists saying, okay, uh, which one fits what you'd like to do? And so I try, if I can, depending on their schedule and, and such, try to pair up the accompanists to what they want to do and what their strengths are too, which is even more fun because they get really into it as well. Yeah, so when, when did the festival start? Well, we had our first festival screening um, in the spring of 2010, so we, we kind of formulated it, and we kind of gone on from there. This is actually our 10th festival this year, even though it's our ninth year, because I got enthusiastic one year and um, brought in a series of films from Britain for the, the Hitchcock Nine restorations. I wanted to screen Black, the Restored Blackmail at, at our festival the next year and so I got in touch with the BFI and they said oh why don't you show all of them I said oh, I can't afford that because uh, I knew that was going to be really expensive I says no I just want to show blackmail and they're going oh no no we want you to show them all because you you'd be the first Canadian uh, you know then you know person to, to, to scream the Hitchcock nine and I went oh okay that sounds like a great idea let's do that and um it's taken me a few years to recover. <laughs> um, 
it was a great screening. Don't get me wrong. I, I really, really enjoyed the fact that we did bring them in and they're gorgeous. So yeah, it's kind of our ninth year, our 10th festival. Um, you know, the audiences, uh, are, are growing, uh, you know, every year, which is really nice to see, get a lot of regulars coming back, um, for the, like the comedies and the comedy shorts, which we do. It's really nice to see families come in with their kids, which is really terrific. Cause I try to sit in the theater near a group of kids and I kind of watch them watch the films because that's, that's really exciting. Um, so this year's festival has a theme of women in silent film, which mm -hmm. uh, we just had the Kansas silent film festival, which uh, did the same thing. And I think Steve Massa's book slapstick divas has been kind of a, an inspiration. It sounds like for, for a lot of this, getting people to, to see not only, you know, the Asta Nielsen's of women in silent film, but also the Alice Howells and, yeah. and people like that. Um, so yeah, tell, tell me about, uh, this year's festival. Well, this year's festival, um, we sort of, have named it like pushing boundaries. So, um, the first half of the festival is dedicated to women in film, as you mentioned, and the second half is to other boundary pushing films. Uh, so obviously we start with Aston Nielsen in Hamlet. She produced it. Um, she formed her own production company for it and obviously stars in it, but stars in it in a, in a way which has never been, I don't think has ever been done since, which is play Hamlet born as a woman who has to disguise herself as a man. So it's, it's a retelling or reimagining a little bit of the Hamlet um, story but it's, it's pretty riveting. And uh, so we're getting the 2006 restored print from the, uh, the Deutsche Film Institute. And uh, they've been really super with that. Asta Nielsen is, is an incredible actress. She's got an incredible face. And she, she obviously is in male drag here, but it's really not drag for any level of sensationalism. She plays it pretty straight, but she, she throws some a little bit of humor in there, like like all Shakespearean plays. But it's this it's this sort of knowing body language of her as she's being pushed and pulled by everybody, her her mother, um, the court, um, of, of the great secret she's gotta keep. And she she has to be absolutely dead on in this role or it's not going to work for the audience and she owns this film from the moment she walks on the screen um I've, i watched a little bit of it a few years ago i got a, a dvd from from europe on it i'm like this is really this is really interesting and so when i was putting the the program together for this um i knew it had screened a awful lot in england the last year or so so i emailed my contact over at Southwest silence and I said you know how are the, how is this film being playing with audiences how are they reacting to it and they said you know we'd be getting a lot of really good solid audience response I says well what is what does the restoration look like you know the DVDs are okay but they're gonna look different than a DCP of it I said oh it looks it looks really nice you know um you know I think it'll work for you and I said okay so it's, it's uh, again, something which has sort of been on my list, my long list for um, a couple of years at least. So it, it works and it just 
happened to to work out really well for the big discussions in the world today about gender identity, um, about the role of women in political society. Um, so I, I think I think people will really respond to this. Um, and it's just such a dramatic film. And I think everybody knows the story of Hamlet. So it's not like uh, they're probably more worried about, well, how are they going to do the soliloquies? Yeah. <laughs> more than anything else. I'm how? going, there's no soliloquies here. They're, you're not going to have long intertitles with the soliloquies yeah. on it because it's not necessary. You're, it's telling the story. And um, the next day we're doing uh, Lois Weber's Sensation Seekers, which we're getting from, from Universal, their new restoration on that. So that should be a lot of fun. And, of course, we have our silent shorts program, which is actually programmed by Chris Sagan. And so he's programmed all that. And I, I have to say Slapstick Divas has to be a huge influence um, on that program. And, and I'm really looking forward to that. What are the comedies that you're showing? Well, um, we're doing we're starting off with a short clip of calling more in um, Alice Cinders. Uh, Chris really liked a little clip that was in there. So we're going to start off with that. And, and Colleen Moore is really, really popular with our audiences. Um, we showed Why Be Good and people just went nuts. Um, so we're going to start off with that. We have, uh, oh God, I've only been looking at these lists for how many <laughs> months now? And I, you know, don't ask me what I showed in the festival last year. I can't remember. There's a couple of films I noticed that, that Kansas uh, saw film festival screen which we're screening you, you got to have a pair of tights yeah in that in that we we screened it back in 2010 it brought the house down so we went let's bring it back it's it's been enough time mabel norman and the nickel hopper uh, which is a really nice film cinderella cinders with alice howell and phyllis haver which is always fun hearts and flowers with uh, louise fazenda and um colleen moore in it in a clip from Alice cinders and then on the uh, Sunday, we've got um, the Imperial War Museum's restoration of the Battle of the Somme. Um, they restored that in 2016 for the centenary of the, of the start of the battle. So we're showing that. Plus, we're showing a couple of uh, short archival films from one of them from the uh, Toronto archives of scenes in Toronto from... 1915 and 1916 when they were recruiting and training troops in Toronto to go overseas and um, another short film that was on 28 millimeter actually originally from the Toronto archive uh, the U of T um, Media Commons which has an archive as well University of Toronto so they've loaned us that uh, 10 minute clip and it's about um, the French armies in 1914 and 1915 um, setting up for, you know, war. So that's an awful lot of fun. And then there's, you know, our film Page of Madness, which has actually been on my list of films to screen for now three or four years. So I thought, just let's get it done here. I mean, that's about <laughs> as boundary pushing as we can. I went, why haven't I, people would ask me, why haven't you shown Page of Madness? I'm going, ah, I guess I'm going to be doing it this year. So, and I'm really looking forward to that because we've got a, a, a good friend who's a, a, an expert on early Japanese film, which is going to be introducing and doing a Q&A after, afterwards as well. And um, 
the Japan Foundation here in Toronto is is really active with that screen, so that's going to be really exciting. I really like the Japanese silence. Um, we've screened uh, Tokyo Course back in the day, and and uh, I really like to be able to to screen more of them. Now, Page of Madness. Um, I saw something that suggested there's been a restoration since the version that has been floating around the 16 market in the U.S. at least for years and years. Uh, is, is it different now? It, yes. Um, I'm getting uh, DCP actually from Flickr Alley on that. Um, but it all comes from the same print. So print source, which was 16 millimeter, but it, it's, it's, um, it looks a lot better. It's not perfect um, uh, unless we find a, a 35 millimeter print of it. But it's certainly a heck of a lot better than, uh, yeah, from the really terrible uh, DVDs that have been floating around for years on it, which is, they're almost unwatchable, even on TV. And I think even with the sort of slightly lower quality than we're used to on a, maybe a 35 millimeter restoration, um, I think that film is just so different that it can it can tolerate um a little bit of of softness in, in the picture quality yeah i mean it's usually described as being sort of like the japanese version of cabinet of dr caligari or something like mm -hmm. that but it really has i mean it has feeling and emotion to it that i wouldn't say caligari particularly has it's not just a a visual film but you know a very sad film about a uh, a man dealing with his wife being lost to madness, basically, mm -hmm. and, and kind of the impressionistic world of madness. Yeah, it's an interesting take on um, how madness and insanity and mental illness is perceived, both by the people in the asylum, you know, his wife, you know, that opening scene where she imagines herself as a different person. With, with the dancing and, and how she is perceived in real life. So it, it's, it's actually a very introspective film. And you're right, it's, while it's usually compared to Cabin of Dr. Caligari, I, I think they're completely different films. Um, it'll be interesting to see how people react to that. That was going to be my next question is, does, do you think your audience... Uh, is open to something like that. I mean, it's the kind of film that sometimes, you know, the pe the people who kind of like fun old movies look at something like that and just see it as as potential torture. Uh, <laughs> sometimes, you know, up there with like Passion of Joan of Arc or something. So, I mean, is your audience your audience up for a Japanese silent about madness? Yes. If if I had shown this in the first year, I would have lost the audience. Um, I can show it now because the audiences are trusting us to push them a little bit further. Um, and that's really just a buildup over the years. And I think we'll be getting an awful lot of people which are just interested in, in Japanese film itself and early Japanese film, which want to come and see this. But yeah, I mean, avant-garde type of films um, are a little bit of a harder audience sell because it's not the people that are coming to see some Max Senate well, like slapstick comedy, which are necessarily going to be coming to see that. Um, but you have a different audience, which appreciates, I think, the art type of 
silent film, which should respond to it. So, I mean, I wouldn't want to have an entire program of films of that type um, any more than I want, want to have an entire film festival of, of slapstick comedy. Um, it, cause that's not what the festival's about really. So it'll be interesting. I, I always, by the time the festival rolls around, I, I've seen these films a few times and I just watch the audience. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm more interested in the, in the audience reaction. How are they reacting to it? I like hearing the gasps, um, during certain films, uh, I, I like hearing the energy, which actually you can just sort of feel flowing around the room during parts of different different films. Um, so I, I just like to watch the audience. I like to talk to them afterwards, get some feedback about what they think. And, and for some, you know, this film might be a little bit too much, um, like Passion of Joan of Arc. I mean, I had people in tears leaving Passion of Joan of Arc. When we're kind of around other film geeks, other silent film people, we all talk a different language. We all we all talk in you know a fairly knowledgeable way. We may not have seen all the films that somebody else has seen, but we understand how silent films work. But when you're you're trying to create a new audience for silent films, they're they're speaking and, and about those films and coming from a different point of view. And, and that point of view is just as valid because they're the audience of the future that's going to keep it going. Um, so they have to be taken into account. Um, I don't think to the point where you just show, you know, the silent film's greatest hits repeatedly, even though there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Um, but I think they have to trust you. And then I think you just have to push them a little bit. And say, take take a little bit of a chance. Um, you're already watching a film of which you have to use your brain an awful lot with. You have to use your imagination an awful lot with. Trust me to show you a film which is going to challenge you a little bit. But we'll see. It's like every year, I you know, I try not to count on the audience I had the year before, even though they do come back. Um, I always try to challenge myself when it comes to programming um, and see and see where the festival takes itself rather than me completely directing it I like to see how the festival um, goes with the audience and, and what they feel they want to see too The 10th Toronto Silent Film Festival runs April 6th through 9th. Links to the festival's website and tickets will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. About 10 years ago, someone looked at the opportunities that the internet offered for reaching out and spreading news about the niche interest of silent film to people all over the world. Okay, that was me with Nitrateville. 
But it was also Brandy Cox, a silent film fan who now works at the Academy Film Archive in Los Angeles, and Stephen Hill, a film buff and graphic designer who now works for the UCLA Film and Television Archive. They launched The Silent Treatment, a snazzy-looking PDF newsletter of articles about screenings, releases, books, and silent stars and directors. It grew into other ways of sharing silent film in the LA area, and though they recently announced that the silent treatment would be shutting down as a newsletter, it will be continuing in other directions. I spoke with Brandy Cox and Stephen Hill. I was a much younger film archivist at the time, and I had just graduated from the Selznick School of Film Preservation, and a lot of their holdings, their vault holdings, are um, very much dedicated to early cinema, and a lot of their grant funding um, is directed towards that. So during my time as a student there, I got to see some of the the best material uh, exhibited inside their Dryden Theater, and uh, Lon Chaney's The Penalty really stands out um, to me, and they had had just received, they were working on a grant from the, I think from the NEH or the NEA called the Saving the Silence Grant. So they were able to pull a lot of uh, unique material from their from their collection and send it off to uh, labs to be worked on. And I was just so intrigued. I mean, I, I'd never seen um, such high quality of silent pictures. And finally, and then when I moved into the profession myself, I, I wanted to continue to pursue it. And I was assigned to the Black Hawk Films Collection, David Shepard's collection, to pursue it. And through the processing of that collection over like a five-year period, my knowledge base just grew and grew and grew. But I thought to myself, you know, I'm, I'm interested, but I'm not, I'm not, not, not at a scholarly level. And and I I wanted to get information and distribute it, but in a very simple way. Originally I was interning uh, at her, the archive that she works at. And, um, since we both had a uh, interest in silent cinema, you know, I was noticing, oh, she's working on this, and she'd see that I was working on another silent thing, and we would, you know, kind of discuss the projects we were working on. And she seemed to know all of these things that were going on. She had her finger on the pulse of all these festivals and things like that. And and I said, boy, you should consider starting, you know, a, a little like a a little email digest or something and, and send this out for folks that are busy like me who don't have time to try to keep track of everything that's going on in the world. And uh, once I got hired, I, I work at uh, the UCLA Film and Television Archive. And once I got hired here, um, she called me up one day and said, you know that idea you had? And that was the birth of the silent treatment. And so you were the designer for it? I was a designer. I was also one of the editors, um, you know, and I brought in, she, since she had the most time, she did most of the, uh, she, she would, she would find a lot of the articles to use. And I found some too, but I have to say she did the lion's share of that, but I was doing, you know, I did the original design, made the template and I would uh, typeset all the, uh, issues and, uh, edit them. And a lot of the articles came in pretty rough. So uh, that had to go through a lot of editing. Again, it wasn't, you know, a a uh, publication uh, for sale. It was something we did for uh, just our love of silent cinema, and uh, you know, 
it, I think it was it was good and information and and hopefully being a little bit entertaining too. How did you go out and find people who would subscribe to this thing? My boy, that was ten years ago. Yeah. <laughs> I think Mike, it, it really it really had to do with your with the formation of Nightscape because didn't that come online around the same around the time? same time exactly? Yeah. So I really feel that that was the platform. I think once you're you know we. You were involved with alt movies silent, wasn't right. that? Wasn't that the alt? You were involved with that, and then of course it got way out of control with um, uh, bots and spammers, et cetera, et cetera. And you were able to, you wanted to continue this format in, in a better moderated environment. So many of us were appreciative of that, and you know, if, if that became a, a concentrated ground of people that were enthusiasts, that were scholars, that were. Uh, in the in the uh, preservation and, and conservation business, and so that was just my um my call out was like, hey, we're starting a newsletter, and that was the initial place where where I said, you know, if you're interested, please uh, just send a, a letter, a note of interest to our generic Yahoo account, and you know, you got maybe 30, 40 people, and then we released the issue. That you know, that number steadily grew because they really enjoyed the material we were. Uh, gathering together, distributing because it was fresh to them, and if they and, and we even said in our our cover letters, you know, if you know of anybody that would enjoy this, please forward it along. It's free, and uh, we'd love to have you know more people. The more, the merrier. What kind of trends in the silent film world did you see uh, as time went by? Well. Um... As much as there are trends in the silent film sure. I realize world, that's a contradiction um, in terms right. of... Well, you know, we had... I mean, our big thrill was when uh, a print of uh, Bardley's The Magnificent turned up, and we were kind of the ones that got to break the news on that. That was like the biggest scoop you can have, I guess, is something, you know, returned from the dead. And it's quite a good little film, too. So it was like, you know, it was really cool to be able to, to do that. And uh, I remember talking to Bob Gitt, one of the, at the time, he was our head of preservation at UCLA. And it was fun to, you know, let him know about that rediscovery. The one thing I always noticed, because you know how we, we all have uh, Google Analytics now, you know, we all kind of want to find out where, where is, where is this being sent out to who's, who's tapping into the website. And it really fascinated me that as the newsletter, as time marched on, we were discovering that silent film festivals were showing up in, in the, the most interesting places. I mean, in the Philippines, in the Ukraine, in uh, Scotland, at HipFest. Uh, I mean, all these places where they had never before attempted to do a silent film festival. I remember another one was Brazil. And I was like, wow, who knew that all these other, uh, you know, other countries would take an interest in this and and ha have such an interest that they wanted to form their own festivals. I remember Toronto Film Festival was also a, la a late arrival. They came in around 2010 or 2011. So when you eventually had you you had these anchor silent film festivals, you had Pordenone and you had San Francisco. And then as time marched on, all of a sudden these other smaller communities in all these different countries were launching their own. And that was very exciting. And in addition to that, I was also gradually noticing that we kept getting subscribers for, from all these uh, higher learning institutions. We We kept getting people from... Yale and Columbia University and, uh, you know, Chicago, all these top shelf uh, 
educational places wanted to subscribe to the newsletter. And I thought to myself, oh, come on. I mean, we're not that great. You know, <laughs> why are you why are you guys, you know, taking your time wanting to subscribe to this? It, to me, it wasn't it wasn't academic leaning, but evidently they, they found value in it. And that was just so humbling to us that even in these top a- academic locations, somebody was getting something out of it. And then you also got into doing uh, showings out in the Los Angeles area. Well, originally, uh, you know, you're, I, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but there's the silent movie theater on Fairfax in Los Angeles that had been around for years. John Hampton and his wife had, uh, had built that theater, and it's still there to this day. Um, and about 10 years ago, a group called Cinefamily took it over, and they left it pretty much the same. It looked physically, it looked the same inside, but they did kind of all sorts of of programming, independent pro- programming, and they had no one there, and they felt they they felt kind of an obligation to the history of the theater that they should have some silent films program there, and they just. They none of them there knew anything about silent film other than the usual canon films, you know, the the Buster Keatons and Charlie Chaplin's, and uh, so you know we'd go there occasionally, and then somehow we struck up a conversation since I the the, the guy that was in charge of Cinema Family uh, would had his collection with UCLA, and we would also loan them prints for certain screenings, and then he kind of decided to call us in and said, hey, I know both of you have a lot of knowledge in this area where we have none. You know, would you consider doing a once a month? And so that was supposed to be a one-year project. And then it turned out to be we were there until they had to close their doors earlier in, well, about mid-2017. Um, so that was about a seven, eight-year run, which was pretty fun. And it was nice to be able to program films you always wanted to watch but hadn't had a ch- in, the, in a theater and get a chance to do that. So it was kind of our, like, hey, this is great. You know, we get to sit, and they had couches in the front row. So you would sit in a couch like you're at home, but you had a, a pretty large screen to watch all all these uh, really interesting films. Plus, it would give us access to stuff that wasn't available on home video. The showings at the silent movie theater in Los Angeles were done through Cinefamily, which eventually imploded yeah. last year over yeah. sexual harassment scandals. Did you have any shows in the works that you suddenly had to scramble to find a location for? Yes, we were lined up to clean uh, uh, the preservation premiere of The Covered Wagon, that the Paramount Archives had been working on for September. I think it was about September the 8th was our scheduled program, and we had already started to promote it uh, in August. And I recall leaving on vacation, and while I was on vacation is when all of this uh, press came up about about the harassment scandal. And within days of our, of our promotion, we had to withdraw it immediately. So... We were kind of like, well, what do we do? Should we should we wait and see? Are they going to reopen soon? We had no timeline as to how long this was, you know, the theater was going to be closed down. And I thought, well, maybe this is just an opportunity to explore our options. We were just volunteers there, and it's really all about, you know, continuing uh, continuing to gather audiences together to experience silent film in, in a theater the way you're supposed to see it. So I had 
um, I had, you know, on social media, once people get, once Facebook recognizes the algorithms that you watch old pictures and you watch uh, 35 millimeter, they'll start to obviously plug in advertisements for other places around town that meet those interests. And one, one organization that popped up was the Autry Museum. Um, that was promoting a 35 millimeter screening of the treasure of the Sierra Madre. And that really struck me. I said, well, oh my gosh, I don't, I never knew that, or I did not recall that the Wells Fargo theater uh, supported 35 millimeter shows and the theater itself had changeover projectors, which is um, an archival projection standard. You cannot put, you cannot put 35 millimeter silent pictures or any archival pictures on a platter projection. And so that was like, oh, this is wonderful. Let's consider, uh, you know, writing to them and, you know, telling them what happened and seeing if they want to organize a periodic silent film show at their museum. And by, and that's what we did. I talked it over with Steve and I said, what do you say? What, my, this is my plan. What do you think? The venue, the size of the venue was very uh, similar to the, the silent movie theater. The silent movie theater had about 185 seats. And the Wells Fargo Theater had 215 seats. So that was great. I said, we can probably find some pictures that are, that are of general audience appeal that will be able to fill a, a, you know, a good portion of the Wells Fargo Theater. And the Autry said, okay, well, you know, we, like, we like this. We want to bring in new audiences to experience our campus. And we'd like to uh, collaborate with you. So we uh, picked up where we left off and we, scheduled, we rescheduled the covered wagon in January to run a country, and it was a, a wonderful success. It was a great way to bring the audience from the silent movie theater over to the Wells Fargo theater to enjoy the show. We, we've actually, we're doing a, a, at this moment, we're handling a dual guest programming residency at two locations in, in Los Angeles. The, we have, there's a micro cinema, a nice uh, luxury cinema right here in Hollywood called the Arena Cine Lounge that just opened its doors about six months ago. And we are going to be debuting our first program there, Crossing Fingers, knock, knock, knock on wood. On April the 7th, we are running uh, Fritz Long's Destiny on um, 2K Restoration DCP there. And we've already got uh, a enthusiastic interest on the event page. So I'm hoping that we can uh, periodically pop up in some locations in Los Angeles and you know, spread the spread around the formats, the variety, and the audiences. So I told Steve, I said, Who, "Whoever thought we would become pop-up programmers?" But that's where that's where we're <laughs> at right now. <laughs> so you do both uh, 35 and DCP as opportunity presents. We do. Um, it was early on. We we decided that you know we we love film. You know, and it seems pretty obvious, but we wanted there were things that you just can't get on film. And so we wanted didn't want to limit ourselves. And uh, it's a couple of years in the Cine family had a they had a telethon or a a, a webathon, I guess, because it was it was broadcast over the Web. And they raised money, bought bought a DCP, and and did some upgrades. So from then on, you know, our first choice would be 35 if it's available. But we are certainly happy to show a DCP um, if that's the way we can access a, a particular film. Now you decided recently to put an end to the newsletter. Uh, why was that? Uh, well, over time, 
Steve and I had a certain type of criteria as to the kinds of news items we wanted to incorporate into the newsletter. And, you know, in the old days, the stuff was so fresh and so frequent that I was able to collect it in, in, you know, very easily over a couple of months. And as the years went on, the variety of material we were looking for was starting, was only appearing, appearing in big stretches of time. And I was getting tougher and tougher to piece together a newsletter that's not repetitive, that's original material that hasn't been circulated to our readers in some other way, in some other uh, social media way. I said, I think that we just need to end this on a high note and look at newer, uh, newer options to, you know, kind of a reboot, a reboot of getting uh, information out to our readers, our readership. I was concerned that the quality was going to drop because our readers were, you know, they always expected something really nice and polished and different material and new material. And I didn't want to start getting repetitive, like, you know, mentioning the same festivals, mentioning the same distributors of home movies and or, uh, home entertainment and books and things like that. It just, it's just like, okay, well, this is, we've, we've heard this all before. It's time to wrap it up. So I, I kind of thought we need to, we need to wrap this up before it wraps us up. Follow what the silent treatment is up to at their Facebook page, TST News and Film. We'll have the link in the show post at nitrateville.com. Is that pill for Medicine Hatman here again? Yes, and he wants more money. Right as high. He wants more money, and if he don't get it, he'll take our Malamutes. He won't take old Balto, my lead dog. Why not, Paul? Because I had him. You had him? He was mighty good with mustard. How did a comedian known for the mellifluous grandiloquence of his vocal presentation make it in the medium of the silent film? Well, you can see two examples that will help answer that paradox, as Kino Lorber releases two of W.C. Field's Silence for Paramount. It's The Old Army Game from 1926, co-starring Louise Brooks, and Running Wild from 1927. Nitrateville member Jim Nybar is the author of the W.C. Fields Films, which is why Kino invited him to offer commentary tracks on both films. We started by talking about why he wrote a book about Fields. I wrote that book because the last ones that were written were like back in the 60s and 70s. I have the Citadel Press one, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the old Donald Deschner one. That's the one I had. And uh, so many lost films, like The Silence, had... Uh, have been discovered since then. So I thought it was time for a reassessment. And so uh, uh, we put that together. And uh, we also have uh, access to more research with the internet nowadays. So I could uh, offer more information on the films that are still lost uh, by doing the sort of research that just was a little bit harder to do when we didn't have it so completely accessible to us with uh, the advances in technology. So uh, that's why we wrote the book. And um, I, I, I guess the silence are the things that were most interesting to me because back when we got the Donald Deschner book as kids, uh, we read about the silence and might've been as intrigued as anything, but there was no real access to them. We really couldn't watch them and see what uh, WC fields would do 
in silent movies. Uh, I was well into adulthood before I finally started to see them. And uh, I discovered that uh, he made some really funny silent films, uh, two of which are coming out from Kino. Yeah, I had seen, you know, Running Wild, of course, was released by Paramount Home Video on VHS. Yeah, that's, that's when I finally saw it. I was like... 35 years old by that. <laughs> but the other the other two main ones from that time, of course, I'd seen Sally the Sawdust because that was public domain and the yeah. Killiam films and all that. Um, yeah. But the other two, one of which is in is now being released, uh, It's the Old Army Game and So's Your Old Man, those were surprisingly hard even for someone like me who went to movie conventions and everything to see. They just never really turned up much. Right. And so this it's exciting to get one of them. Anyway, but let's let's talk about how Fields had a silent career at all. That's always the the you know the paradox for people. He made a couple of attempts in the teens to get into movies. Uh, one of which survives, Pool Sharks from 1915. Um, what happened with that first attempt to get into the movies? Well, uh, he made that attempt, but uh, I, I don't know that he found filmmaking as rewarding as being on stage back then. Uh, <clears throat> these were made by, uh, uh, I believe, Gaumont uh, Company, G-A-U-M-O-N-T. I'm not terribly familiar with a lot of the pronunciations like most people in my last name. And uh, they were released through uh, Mutual. And um, I, I, guess, I, I guess his um, attempt to make films was more of an intriguing thing than anything else. I, I don't know that uh, he... Uh, had any uh, like further interest other than to uh, maybe record some of his vaudeville shtick for posterity, because uh, as you know, pool sharks is the pool table stuff, but uh, his Lordship's dilemma, which is lost uh, has the first filmed version of his golf routine. And uh, uh, we get an idea of what that would look like in a silent. Cause he did it in the later silent, of course, but um, the, the, his Lordship's Dilemma, when you research it, uh, it was pretty well received. Um, Moving Picture World and those uh, periodicals back then uh, thought it was amusing and novel and uh, so forth. But uh, he didn't pursue a movie career at the time, Fields, because uh, <clears throat> he uh, didn't think that uh, it was much more than a novelty, even though by uh, the time he was making movies, uh, Griffith was making some pretty interesting strides with cinema. Uh, I don't think that Fields latched on to what it could do for him, and he had more success on stage. So that's why uh, he made those couple of movies and then sort of forgot about it, went back on stage. And I think it was about nine years before he appeared in another film. And at that point, he gets into films kind of as a more of a character actor. Um, yeah. And Sally, the sawdust in particular, whenever he's allowed to take the camera away from Carol Dempster, he runs away with it for sure. What, what was his attitude at that point? Well, at that point, uh, I, I think um, he, he was. Uh, I, I think he was more interested in uh, the approach as an actor and what he could do with film. Um, he uh, the, the first thing he got into was uh, that movie Janice Meredith. Uh, he just a, took took uh, like a small role and. Uh, it had an astronomical budget at the time, uh, but and it was a huge hit and got uh, 
critical acclaim, but it didn't have a lot to do with W.C. Fields himself. That's why uh, we always center upon Sally of the Sawdust when he has a little bit more time to do, because that was based on Poppy, uh, Broadway success that he had. And uh, because D.W. Griffith, the director, was connected with uh, Carol Dempster, uh, she gets the bulk of the footage, and it's mostly her film. But uh, it's interesting to see Fields that early working as an actor and not just a comedian doing routines and uh, not just the sort of cameo that's in uh, something like Janice Meredith and uh, show it. What, what I find fascinating about something as early as Sally of the Sawdust is you start to see some of the mannerisms that we're so familiar with in the much later fields classics during the sound era that we know so well. So uh, I, I think uh, it tells us that fields had honed his character uh, pretty completely while he was still working on stage and in the Ziegfeld Follies. And after that, I mean, pretty quickly, he then gets the chance to do starring roles, um, of which um, It's the Old Army Game and Running Wild are both examples. And um, they're, right. also, they're also deriving from some of his stage work. We get versions of, of routines uh, in different points in those films. What's interesting is that uh, Fields was so funny on stage is that they thought, well, he could be in funny in movies, too. And so when they started using him in features, uh, they tried to uh, bring a lot of his stage routines that were so popular uh, on film. There were a lot of uh, people in the Midwest that um, realized that uh, didn't didn't understand, you know, how funny Fields could be because uh, he, you know, was better known on the coasts at the time. So a movie, of course, would be uh, throughout the nation. And um, when he does like uh, the back porch routine, which we know so incredibly well from uh, It's a Gift, uh, when he does it in It's the Old Army Game, uh, I was really intrigued at, at how that would possibly work uh, in a silent film because I think of it as very dialogue-oriented with the whole Carl LaFong thing and so forth, and it's a gift. And uh, it does work. Uh, he does know how to uh, transform that particular routine into a silent. And it isn't because they just throw a bunch of subtitles up there. Uh, there's a lot more physical humor uh, involved. It's a lot more, uh, you know, visual comedy, of course. And uh, so... Um, the simple concept of the routine of him just trying to fall asleep, uh, things like a crying baby. We, we can realize, uh, um, the sound of a crying baby just by the close up of the baby and, uh, the visual stuff like fields, like leaving and coming out with a shotgun and looking around, that's still funny without dialogue. So they used the, uh, physical attributes of, uh, the comedy, the physical comedy, uh, of that routine within the realm of a silent film. And it comes off really, really well. Yeah. I mean that, that whole sequence, I, I was the same way. I was really interested to see how he does that. And, you know, Simon Luvish pointed out in his biography, you know, he found examples of basically that same routine scripted going back, you know, to around 1900. So it's material that Fields has been playing with for decades at that point and continues into, yes. into It's a Gift. And so he's able to retrofit it for whatever medium he happens to be in at that point uh, pretty successfully. I mean, I thought that that worked quite well. There were other parts of It's the Old Army Game that struck me as sort of first drafts for It's a Gift and di to me didn't play off as well or made him less sympathetic when they 
when they picnic on a a um, rich person's lawn, I'm not quite remembering the details, but I found it made them pretty unsympathetic there. Where in the in the talkie, he's very good at you know sort of making them making them a disaster you know a disaster for themselves as well as whoever they're inflicted upon at that moment and you know the comedy is is just a little more poignant uh there well yeah i i think it is a gift uh we uh understand the character as being um a pretty sympathetic one already and he's innocently going to where he thinks it's a park and the fact that they're littering is because they simply don't know any better. They don't realize that this is sloppy behavior. They're just carrying on in their manner. Um, whereas in uh, it's the old army game, they uh, go to the place they do think it's a park and they rather boorishly trample things about and don't particularly care that they're making a mess. It really doesn't matter. And uh, there's a wonderful quote from Louise Brooks, who is, of course, in the movie, uh, who said that uh, they shot that scene for like five days and they just turn that wonderful property into a garbage dump. But the owners of the property were so excited that they were filming a scene from a movie that uh, even though after the cleanup, all the walking around of the crew members and stuff still kind of messed up their lawn and so forth, they didn't have a problem with that because they were just so excited that uh, they could um, tell their friends in Palm Beach that uh, they shot a Paramount movie over at uh, on their property so <laughs> i guess uh hollywood uh, held that sort of stargazing excitement quite early it's the old army game is essentially it's a gift running wild is more interesting the first half of it is pretty much the man on the flying trapeze but then it right. goes goes off in its own direction much more uh and lives up to the yeah. title running wild in a way that's pretty different i mean it comes to the same kind of plot conclusion but it's very different and you know more physical and representing i think the fact that fields was quite a bit younger at that point and more fit well in man on the flying trapeze which yeah it is essentially the same uh story is uh fields <clears throat> doesn't like flip out at the end he doesn't get hypnotized any of that stuff just at the very tail end when grady sutton's character uh moves threateningly towards Mary Bryan, the daughter character, uh, Fields punches him out <laughs> that he finally has had enough and he finally lashes out. And that's really gratifying. And it's, you know, a wonderful scene. And in running wild, it's a bit more blatant, uh, crazier because he stumbles onto a uh, vaudeville stage quite by accident. And, uh, he ends up getting hypnotized and this meek guy that gets pushed around by everybody, uh, starts yelling, I'm a lion, I'm a tiger, and he starts confronting people aggressively, and it turns his entire life around. I mean, he manages to get a big contract for his company, uh, he manages to get a huge bonus and a raise, and uh, then he comes home and he manages to throw out the sponging uh, brother-in-law. Or, I, I, I believe, in fact, uh, I, I believe it's uh, it might be a stepson in uh, the silent um I wish uh, details didn't fall out of my head because when I <laughs> when I leave a project and move on to the next project, I'm so engrossed in that particular project that uh, I start to lose details from the other. But uh, he pretty much cleans house. Uh, Mary Bryan plays his daughter in the silent as well as in the uh, 
um, Man in the Flying Trapeze. So yeah, it is a really fascinating partial reworking Man in the Flying Trapeze. He goes somewhere else with the character um, <clears throat> because it really works better in a silent for him to be so aggressive and so manic because it's a very physical, very visual sort of comedy. Whereas uh, uh, Man in the Flying Trapeze, the approach is, uh, has more subtlety. Both are very, very funny, though. I might, if I were backed into a corner, I might say that uh, Running Wild is the silent WC Fields that I've seen that I enjoy the most. Yeah, I think it's the most solidly put together and just funniest throughout, for sure. Uh, which is not to say anything against uh, it's the old army game or so's your old man. Um, so he made a number of other silence that are lost. The survival rate of the Paramounts at that time are not that good, and they they also resemble his his sound Paramounts. So I guess this character worked for him. I mean, was it a was it a popular success at the time? Well, you know, his silent movies really weren't very successful. I think Paramount was expecting him to have the sort of success that some, someone like Harold Lloyd was enjoying at the same time. And uh, Fields just didn't get that sort of box office success. Uh, if they made money at all, it was a very meager amount. And uh, I'd really like to see, and uh, they're all lost, but uh, he made three films in which he was co-starring with Chester Conklin in sort of an ersatz comedy team uh, fashion, uh, Fools for Luck and... Uh, is uh, probably the one that sounds most interesting. And then, of course, uh, the remake of Tilly's Punctured Romance, which isn't really a remake at all when you research it. It's the same premise, but a completely different story that takes him into the military and everything. Um, but uh, the fact that Max Wayne repeats his role as uh, the father of Tilly, uh, like he played in the 1914 Senate feature, is uh, interesting. And even though it flopped, it'd be really interesting to see the guy that bought the rights to uh, the 1914 version uh, because he wanted to edit it down and uh, release it like sometime during the thirties. Um, he uh, also, they, they threw in this version, you know, along with that, with his purchase. And he had no interest in that, but uh, he owned it and he just let it sit. And uh, it apparently decomposed that, that seems to be because his purchase is the last thing we know of as to the existence of the remake of Tilly's punctured romance. So uh, the fact that it's lost might mean that we, you know, won't be able to see, but you never know, you know what happens that things sure. pop up and you just don't realize, but uh, the, the stuff he made with Conklin, I'd really like to see. I, none of them were reviewed particularly well. None of them went over particularly well. It was a desperation move by Paramount saying, Let's stick him with this guy and see if that works. And it still didn't. So uh, it was, um, I, even though it wasn't successful, it would still be very interesting to me to see uh, what they did with that dynamic. Yeah, just how that works with Fields. Yeah, and, it, yeah. and it's, it's interesting just to think, I mean, if he had said at that point enough with the movies and just gone back to the stage, as many people did, you know, how well would we know him today? I don't think very well. Um, no. And so it's a lucky thing that sound comes along and Fields has the right voice for it and turns out, in fact, to have a, you know, a beautiful musical repertoire of uh, vocal tricks, basically, and that they were willing to kind of just remake his whole silent, you know, make make all his old movies a second time and see what happened. Well, what's interesting is that when he... Uh 
Paramount didn't want to sign him again. And, uh, for, they, you know, eventually did take a chance and they started out by, uh, giving him, uh, you know, smaller roles and co-starring with people. Uh, when you look at something like an ensemble piece, like million dollar legs or international house, or you look at something like, uh, if I had a million where he had a vignette, uh, with, uh, Alison Skipworth. And then he was with Skipworth again until he and Gus and six of a kind, they weren't really letting him alone to do his own thing. He got to do that over with Senate. And then when Senate left him alone and he came up with fatal glass of beer, well, nobody was too happy about that. It's really <laughs> funny and surreal now, but back then it was that people were just confused. So, uh, they weren't like real and Alice in Wonderland. He had that cameo. So I think it wasn't until, uh, he started making movies like you're telling me an old fashioned way. And of course it's a gift where they kind of left him alone and let him work from his own scripts and gave him uh, a certain amount of creative control and realize that he could create something very funny that could also be popular and work at the box office much better than his silent films had. Yeah. It's ironic that he's, you know, seen as sort of this, uh, up bemused misanthrope. And yet what really works in those films is that they do have heart. You, you feel for him, you, feel for his relationship usually with the daughter who is the only one who understands him and doesn't henpeck him in the movie. When you look at uh, a movie like man on the flying trapeze where he's sympathetic and put upon and I mean, he sits down at the breakfast table and you know, the sponging brother-in-law is eating all the food and he's so lazy. He takes a nap after breakfast, things like that. And you, you really start to get, and you know, it's a comic conflict, but a conflict nonetheless and you really start to feel sorry for Fields when uh, there's a scene where he and the daughter are uh, driving, like uh, I, he might be dropping her off somewhere. And uh, she says to him uh, something about, uh, I once overheard you say I never would have remarried if uh, I didn't think Hope needed a mother. The daughter needed a mother figure. And he said, don't ever say that again. And it's this really sudden dramatic scene and then fields pauses and then says, I must've been dr drinking. And then Mary Bryan pauses and says, no, they says, no, dad, you weren't drinking. And it's, it, it like defines both characters in a few seconds where it takes like uh, an hour for character development in modern movies. And in those few seconds, it defines those characters so perfectly. And then they're right back to uh, the more comical stuff about, Go ahead and go to those wrestling matches. I won't tell anybody. And uh, it moves on with the narrative, the comic narrative. But uh, that those few moments really define both characters in that film. And they were played in utter seriousness. And I always found that uh, really quite brilliant. And I also love the fact that when we now, now with access to the silence, we see how things were changed and often improved in talkies. Like in So's Your Old Man, where he wants to bring a peace offering to uh, uh, his wife and it shows him going down the street trying to bring a Shetland pony home. <laughs> well, that's funny. You know, that's funny. But in You're Telling Me, when he redoes the scene, um, he, he, uh, he sees a friend holding a canary in a cage and he says, I'm bringing this home to the wife for a peace offering. And Fields goes, We'll take a bigger bird than that to settle things with my wife. And the very <laughs> next scene, she sees him being dragged down the street with an ostrich on a leash. 
And that visual is so much funnier than the pony, especially with the setup that it's like, wow, he had this and it was funny already, but he changed it and made it even funnier. And for somebody who is interested in the development of film, like historically, especially of comedy, to see something like that, well, that's really fascinating stuff. That's from Donald Sosin's score for the Kino Lorber release of Running Wild. It's the old army game, and Running Wild are out now on Blu-ray and DVD. I'll have links for them and for Jim Nybar's book, The W.C. Fields Films, in the show post at nitrateville.com. Thanks to my guests, Shirley Hughes, Brandy Cox and Stephen Hill, and Jim Nybar. Theme music is by Kevin McLeod. Remember to enter our contest for a DVD of On Dangerous Ground with Carlisle Blackwell, courtesy of Ed LaRusso. Leave a rating, and better yet, a review at iTunes. Then let us know you did it in the show post at nitreville.com. We'll be back in a few weeks. So subscribe at iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher to be sure you know about it when it happens. Thanks.